posture. I have the wonder in my life of uh, having friends on every which way hue of theology and ecclesiology. And I have good friends who are a lot more charismatic than I am and live in that um, independent church charismatic world. And I love being around them. But there's times when they have language that, uh, not bad language, you understand. Uh, there's language that they sometimes find themselves in that's just so otherworldly or ethereal. And yet there's other times when there's um, kind of uh, buzzwords. And I suppose a buzzword over the course of the last wee while has been this posturing. And I like it. I like it a lot and then I hear it a lot and I'm not sure how much... I, but I suppose you're all saying, Stockman, sure, shut up. You have your own buzzwords. You too, you too, you too. Anyway, um, posturing. And it came out a, a wee bit during the Four Corners Festival last year when we were um, up in Clonard for the start of the 100 days uh, prayer for 100 years of history. And um, we were doing a lot of posturing. And it was a posturing of humility before God. It was a posturing of hopefulness before God. It was a posturing of confidence in our belief in God. It was all of these different postures. And I think today you'll find me posturing occasionally as we go through this parable. Because it may be a parable about posture as much as it is about prayer or even humility. We need to start at the start where um, we get an explanation from Luke about what this parable is about. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone, Jesus told this parable. This is Luke's commentary on the parable, Luke's lead into the parable. And it needs to be considered. And some have translated the look down on as to regard with contempt. I'm, for those who are readers of, I'm very heavily leaning on Kenneth Bailey's commentaries this morning because they're brilliant on this and very helpful. Not all Kenneth Bailey, uh, don't blame him for everything I'm going to say, but certainly some of his stuff has been helpful. And he talks about not so much look down on people as to regard these other people with contempt. And Bailey pulls out that actually there's only other, two other places where this happens, really in the scripture in the same sense. And one of them is as they look to, to Jesus with contempt at the cross, Luke 23, or a story in Acts 4, where again it's about Jesus. So in some senses, Bailey hints that maybe we're linking Jesus with the one that's being looked down on. The marginalized, the tax collector, the humble, the least of these. Maybe. But there's posture in how they go about their prayers. Both of them stand apart, but they stand apart in different posture. The Pharisee, he's standing apart because actually he doesn't want to be um, made unclean by maybe possibly touching some of the others that are in the temple praying around him. So he's standing apart because he is holy and he doesn't want to be, you know, his holiness to be somehow tarnished. So he goes and he finds his own place a distance from everybody else so that he would be able to stand apart from them. Smug. 
collector, on the other hand, he makes a distance from people in a different sense of posture. It's a desperate sense of unworthiness that causes him to stand apart. And as always, we've got to be careful with this parable because how we could end up going is, thank you God that we're not like the Pharisee, which would actually make us like the Pharisee. There's a sort of sting in the tail of this particular parable in the way we might tell it. Yes, it's about humility and it's about the posture that we come to God with. As I believe feebly, I tried to get across on the children's address today where we come sorry rather than, oh, look at me, I deserve something. Yes, that's definitely in here and that'll come out as we go on. But there's three things that I want to pull out of this that maybe we haven't seen before in some sense. One is this humility or character or pastoral. I think there's a pastoral, a theological and a missional. I think that, and I'm only thinking that since I got to here, but I'm thinking that's what's going to come through in these three points. First of all, the Pharisee doesn't pray like a Pharisee should pray because the religious people of Jesus' day would have prayed confession They would have thanked God for the bounty bestowed on them and then they would have prayed petitions for themselves and other people. That's not how this guy prays. He almost uses his prayer as a bit of a sermon. You can kind of sense that he's standing apart, looking down on everybody with contempt and he's trying to get into his prayer, in inverted commas, just a sort of a, a, a little damning of those around him in order that they might somehow become like him. So he's almost probably shouting this religious righteousness that these people that I look down on should become like. He's not praying in the shadow of God's expectations. He's praying in the shadow of the expectations of others. He's not really trying to even impress God. It's probably other people that he's trying to impress, like Jesus has talked about a lot. They pray in the street corners and they use all kinds of words and all of this stuff. The tax collector has a different posture altogether. He lowers his eyes. They would say in those days in that particular place in the temple where you prayed, you would have prayed with the lowering of your eyes and the crossing of your arms. But he beats his chest, which is actually something that in the culture of that time, Bailey tells us, is only something that women would do. And it would be an extraordinary thing to see a man doing this, never mind to see a man doing this where this man is actually doing it. So he humbles himself. But here's the thing I thought about this week. As a pastor, not only with those gathered around me, but with the many others that I get an opportunity to uh, share with in different situations during my week, I find that most of us, most of us, are a bit of both. There's a wee bit of both of us in the posturing of these two characters. And I suppose in our spiritual piety, in our spiritual um, development, we need to try and push to the side the different postures of both these people. Both of them. Let me start actually with the tax collector. There's many that I meet with who just don't feel at all worthy of God. To the point that they're saying, well, I'm going to try and get myself back with God. I'm going to try and get myself back with God. It's it's as if we're constantly trying to 
work at being with God, but actually we're so bad at it that God really doesn't want to know us. There's a humility that goes below the humility that we need. It's an unworthiness. It's a sense that we're looking down on ourselves with contempt. And we don't think we have anything to offer. It's like our salvation depends on us and not on God. I've always said evangelicalism that most of us have come from in Fitzroy and are still part of. It's this grace. We're going to come to the theology of this in a moment. It's we're saved by grace and grace alone. And then you receive that gift of grace and you've got to work like the clappers and the dickens in order to keep the grace that was a gift. Something very badly wrong with that. It's almost like justification by faith. The gift of grace is murdered at birth. As soon as you're born again by this gift of grace, you start pummeling yourself to try and somehow stay born. And that is in with all of us at different times. My friend Ricky Ross, singer with Deacon Blue, had albums out before Deacon Blue, and one of them's a beautiful song based on the idea, or based on the title of C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy. There's a million roads that I'd not taken till you caught me with my eyes closed. Looking over my shoulder to see what's behind, I didn't see the promised land. And I fell back into your arms. It's hard when you don't know. I was so surprised by the joy. It was all that I could do to trust you with my life. Falling back into the arms of God. Falling back into the arms of God is a humble thing. But once we fall back into those arms, we need to stop looking at ourselves with contempt. And start looking at ourselves as children, heirs of the Father, and joint heirs with Jesus. Everything has changed. Yes, we need to stay humble. But not looking at ourselves with contempt. And then the other side of it is, there's a wee bit of self-righteousness in all of us. And I'm thinking this morning, because I've been thinking for the last few days about, well, I've been thinking for the last couple of years, actually, but more intensely in the last 10 days and more intensely in the last few days because of committee and session on Thursday night. Nolan the week before that, and then beyond that, all you'll understand. Loyalism. Work and class loyalism. For those of us who would be called garden centre prods or garden centre Catholics, I know there's a few of you in the room as well. Well, you're probably both of you not sure whether you're Catholic or garden centre middle class people. We have a tendency to look down our nose, have we not, at loyalism these days. We have a tendency to hear them on the radio and say, what is going on there? They need leadership. What are they doing? Why? why? How? Uh, uh. To the point where actually we might have started looking at them with contempt. And this is a parable about looking at others with contempt. So my prayer for us all, including myself, particularly myself in the loyalism thing, because that's something God has been dealing with me with for a couple of years and maybe more. My prayer as the pastor is that the Holy Spirit would show us where both of these postures lie within us and heal both 
take both away that we might be living in the fruit of the Spirit. So that's the pastoral. Here's the theological. What is righteousness? Because one of these guys goes away righteous and the other doesn't. Ken Bailey would say there's a difference, he thinks, in in what maybe many would think, and maybe ourselves, sort of cultural righteousness. Do you know, we're upstanding, we're um, morally pretty hardcore, we pay our taxes, we do good, we maybe even give to some communities, even loyalists. We're sort of righteous in a sense. We might even get a promotion and a job because of it or who knows we might even be elected an elder on the committee because of it sort of the things that we do but Bailey says there's something more happening here and he goes into the Hebrew concept of righteousness which is a much broader deeper more spiritual and wider in its implications he quotes Jared von Rad who says this there is absolutely no concept in the Old Testament with so central a significance for all the relationships of human life as that of righteousness. It is a standard not only for human beings' relationships with God, but also for their relationships with their fellow humans. It's even a standard for our relationships to animals and the natural environment. Righteousness is not just a self-righteousness that makes us somehow right with God or look good in front of others. This is a deep-seated, wide-ranging righteousness that changes all the relationships that we have with ourselves, with God, with others, and with the world that God created. And Bailey goes into Micah 6. Micah 6, I'm reading Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Dear people, how have I done you wrong? Have I burdened you, worn you out? Answer. I delivered you from the bad life in Egypt. I paid a good price to get you out of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam to boot. Remember all those stories about Shittim and Gilgal. Keep all God's salvation stories fresh and present. Keep all God's salvation stories fresh and present. The righteousness of the Old Testament is right here in what God's gift was bestowed on the people of Israel. He gifted them righteousness and salvation. And what does that mean for us as we gain that salvation or that gift of salvation? Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, a couple of verses later. But he's already made it plain how to live and what to do. What God is looking for in men and women, it's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. God, in the Old Testament, bestows his gift of righteousness and salvation to his people and expects that out of that, expects that out of that, we will show the same kind of gift of giving to those around us and changed relationships. Where it comes here to the um, tax collector in the story, asking God for mercy... The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Bailey would suggest that the word here is much deeper than mercy. It's God making atonement. God making atonement. 
Bailey thinks that we're here at the uh, atoning sacrifice in the temple courts. And that this is why the man has come, because he's so desperate. He's so needy for God's salvation, for God's righteousness, because he's not of his own, that he's actually asking God to bestow atonement upon him and for him. And so in the parable that we're reading, we're finding the theology of, behold the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And we're also seeing the Pauline theology of justification by faith. Because the righteousness, the justification, the salvation that the tax collector goes away with is bestowed on him not because of anything he's done, but because of what Christ has done for him. Eugene Peterson, Ephesians 2, 7 to 10. Now God has us where he wants us with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Jesus. Now can I ask your tax collector looking down on yourself with contempt self to hear that again? God has us where he wants us with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Jesus. Saving is all his idea. It's all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it to us. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. Are you seeing in that almost a commentary on the parable that we've read earlier? If we thought we could do it ourselves, we'd almost be bragging, like the Pharisee. No, the salvation's all from God. It's almost like the tax collector's posture is, or the song that he's singing is, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Now again, in a pastoral sense, so many people who come to me and say, oh, I've just, I'm just out of touch with God. I've kind of lost my faith. And I've lost my relationship with God and I'm going to try and put it right again. Again, we're thinking that somehow with some of the things that we can do, we can put it right. But my friend Pierce Pettis in a song says, When you start to doubt that you exist, God believes in you. Confounded by the evidence, God believes in you. When your light burns so dim and your chances seem so slim and you swear you don't believe in him, God believes in you. When you rise up just to fall again, God believes in you. Deserted by your closest friends, God believes in you. When you're so ashamed that you could die, God believes in you. And you don't do right even though you try. God believes in you. Blessed are the ones who grieve, the ones who mourn, the ones who bleed. In sorrow you sow, but in joy you reap. God believes in you. Those last words taken as a paraphrase from the Sermon on the Mount might be the tax collector's song. The ones who mourn, the ones who bleed, in sorrow you sow, but in joy you reap, and you go home as the one who is justified because God believes in you. When people say to me, I just don't feel my relationship with God, I think I've lost it. I'm saying, why has God moved? Because if this relationship is built on God's gift and God moving towards us, then it can't be lost unless God moves because the gift's his, given by him. And the posture of the tax collector reminds us of that. 
reminds us of that. That whatever the desperation is within us, the gift of salvation comes from a God who loves us. Finally, the missional posture. Back to Micah and Paul. In Micah 6, do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. Ephesians 2, he creates each of us to be Christ by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do. Work we had better be doing. It seems to me that one of the things that the Pharisees judged for is his standing apart. That one of the things the Pharisees judged for is that he's leaving these people that he looks at with contempt out of the missional posturing of the people of God. He's not reaching to them. He's standing away from them. He's not engaging with them. He's keeping himself safe from them. His posture is not the missional posture of a God who says righteousness and salvation means that all your relationships are different and that you will reach to all these folk that you used to look down with contempt. And so Fitzroy, <clears throat> Stockman, were the dangers that missionally were posturing in safe places that we won't go towards or we won't include or engage with. In Onelaku, we <clears throat> engage with those who are different. In the Holy Lands, we engage with challenging situations. Upstairs on Tuesday night, the local residents took on the police and the city hall and everybody else. And I'm thrilled that they're taking them on in our building. Well, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm thrilled that the meeting happened in our building. I was worried at one stage that they might take them on to the extent that we would need to bring other police in to stop the riot of that. But at least as a church, we're involved in the community discussions and the difficulties that are happening right here. How are we feeling about that? How are we engaging with that? And Donegal Pass. Is that one of the things we've been given a building for? Or what about dissident republicanism at Ardoin? Oh, we've got that sorted out now and there's still these dissidents who are still gurning and moaning. Oh, look down on them with contempt. Let's not be bothered listening to them. Or is it the loyalism around the building that we've been given on Donegal Pass and their flags? And even the word, sometimes I think, am I looking down in contempt? Missionally. Where's our posturing? And I really am going to finish now, and I'm going to finish with what Heather said at the meeting on Thursday night. I know meetings of session committee probably shouldn't be made absolutely public, but Heather, Heather inspired me in a way on, on Thursday night. This has been the thing that has lingered after that meeting. We talked about what we could give to this community and we maybe weren't sure we could give very much to this community. <clears throat> and Heather talked about sitting on committees on Donegal Pass and in the markets and in Lower Orville. And she talked with Heather's usual enthusiasm about how people with so much less than us, materially, educationally, the possibilities and aspirations of life, in every way so much less than we had in that room on Thursday night 
She sits with them in groups where they love their neighbor, where they commit to making their neighborhood better, where they take the cost of that, whatever that cost might be. And though she didn't say it on Thursday night, the guy who was shot from the markets on his way to one of those meetings may have taken the ultimate cost on some level for trying to make the world a better place and we can go into the politics of that if we want or we can look down in contempt if we want but that's what's happening in those neighbourhoods you know what I went away thinking and this is only me off the top of my head and you can disagree with me and you're maybe right but let me pitch it out there on a Sunday morning has education made us fearful? has education paralysed us? Outside of the office that we work in, can we do nothing because we don't think we can? Or we don't think we're able? Or we're looking after our corner? Or we're looking down in contempt at those who actually we maybe should surround ourselves with to be inspired? Posturing. Pharisee bragging tax collector looking down on himself with contempt but the one who found God was the one who was honest and vulnerable and just cried out for mercy cried out for atonement cried out for the gift of grace that changes everything let's pray Lord indeed search our hearts Help us maybe to go home and to open Luke chapter 18 and to put ourselves into this parable and to ask ourselves where we are in this parable and to seek that your Holy Spirit would blow through. Change us by your gift of grace into those who would share your gift of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.